Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And as usual, I'm your host, Sam Mickey, and I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Rowan Deer. Rowan, welcome. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, you're the author of a wonderful new book, came out, I believe, in 2020. It's Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World, uh, out with Bloomsbury. And uh, it's such a delightful text. So as soon as I was reading it, I was just like, oh, I got to got to have you on here and, and talk to you about this. And of course, it's you know, a podcast about religion and ecology, but we really try to think of environmental humanities broadly and uh, and the stuff you're doing with environmental humanities, eco-criticism. I was just like, this is really this is some of the most exciting things for me. Uh, so I was really happy to, to bring you on and, and chat with you. Before we get into the book, I wonder if you could say something a little bit more of, by way of autobiographical reflections. Because I'm always really curious what leads people into this kind of work, uh, caring about the environment, but also doing that kind of work from a literary perspective or a philosophical perspective. Because a lot of times when people think of environmental work, they just want to do direct action, activism, maybe policy, and they don't necessarily think of it in terms of literature or philosophical work. So, so how did that kind of intersection come about for you? Um. So the the environmental interest has been really long running, like since I was a child. I don't I don't know where it came from, and it's a bit it's a bit, bit of an odd characteristic actually, because my family are not that. <laughs> um, so you know they're they're not the kind of family that like took me out hiking. We weren't always in nature, like literally none of that. Um, I was a very like indoors bookie child there's there's the literary aspect for you um but but yeah for some reason i i had from this very young age this kind of um strong environmental consciousness um which is perhaps uh well described by i remember I was probably about seven or eight and my aunt was explaining to me the political parties in England. Um, so, you know, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Green Party. Um, and then, and she kind of explained their different policies to me, you know, in eight year old language. Um, and then asked me who I would vote for. Mm. And I, I said the Green Party. Um, and she told me that no one votes for the Green Party <laughs> because that's a wasted vote. Um, so, you know, I, I, I honestly can't explain really where that impulse came from, but it was obviously there from, from a very young age. Um, and as to, um, combining it with literature. So, yeah, as I said, I was, I was very bookish. I kind of, um, I always loved reading it was, I, I, I also kind of, I grew up without any other children around me. So reading was kind of my main activity. Um, and yeah, kind of went on to study it at university, did my bachelor's and master's, started a PhD in literature. And um, I guess kind of from my master's, it started to have more of an environmental focus um and then and then with the phd it kind of it started off as like more 
like my idea was to have like a literary study of four modernist authors with this kind of environmental aspect. And then I went a bit insane as lots of people do when they aren't trying to do a PhD and I tried to leave. I like intermitted for a year um, and was really sort of questioning whether I even wanted to do it. But I did eventually come back and kind of the, the essential factor for me there was like, okay, this needs to be like fully about the environment. Otherwise I just don't care enough. I can't see the point in it. Um, so yeah, for, for me, it was just, um, yeah, it was a way to kind of, even though I had this like longstanding love of literature, it like wasn't enough to keep me engaged. Like I felt like I needed it to, to somehow speak more to the crises that we're facing, um, as a species. So yeah, that's how I got there. Yeah. I appreciate it. It's very, very kind of similar trajectory for me, at least in terms of thinking that doing, you know, any kind of academic work without addressing ecological emergency feels so uh, useless or, you know, like, I don't know, like uh, playing the fiddle while Rome burns or I don't know, whistling in the dark. I'm not sure what it is, but it feels, and sometimes reading, even sometimes reading environmental work that it just is just talking about it as if it's like, Oh, there's a problem. We're working on it. Don't worry. Like uh, it's actually extremely serious. How are people not, just freaking out about this, or at least addressing the severity of the emergency. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, a kind of bigger topic that I, I want to see if you can share some of your experience about, which is just the kind of abject failures of academia to really rise to the moment. And of course, other institutions are having their problems too. But uh, so I wonder if you could say a little about that and, uh, you know, feel free to be as jaded as, as you want to be, because, you know, these are real failings. And I think holding these yeah. institutions accountable and is important. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I should say I'm not working in academia anymore. Um, and yeah, although kind of that environmental focus gave me enough of a point to get the PhD done in the years after the PhD, as I was pursuing postdoctoral research, this kind of niggling unease that I had um, about academia as an institution in general, but also how it relates to environmental issues. So, you know, the fact that, okay, you can write the most strident academic article, you know, proposing the solution to all of our environmental problems, and it's read by who exactly? Like, five other researchers, maybe your professor, like, um, it's not exact. It doesn't feel very impactful, especially in the humanities. I mean, maybe if you're working in a subject where you're actually kind of impacting policy and stuff, then it's a different story. But, um, yeah, it kind of, for me, it just felt like what I was doing was like still so far removed from the rest of the world and, and, um, the things that I cared about. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to be completely jaded. Like, it's not that I think that these academic departments shouldn't exist anymore. And I think there is of course still value in, in careful thinking and just, you know, learning to read well, like learning to be a sensitive, responsive reader, because that is, you know, 
a skill that, okay, you put to work when you're writing an academic essay, but it also makes you a different kind of person in the world, right? Um, but yeah, for me, it felt, well, for that reason and for for other more practical reasons, I kind of felt like I needed to try and do something else. And so uh, what are you up to these days? Um, so for the past year, I've been working at a cultural institution in Berlin. It's called Haus der Kulturen der Welt. Um, it means the House of World Cultures. Um, and they have this project called Anthropocene Curriculum. Um, and so I basically am writing and editing for the website of of that project and and also doing other things actually like I've done a couple of podcasts for them I'm currently working on a video script um but basically it means that I've been kind of really engaging with the actual geological science of the Anthropocene um so the Anthropocene working group who have been tasked with um kind of looking for stratigraphic evidence of the geological Anthropocene at 12 sites all over the world. They have been collaborating with Haus de Kultur und der Welt since 2013, so for 10 years now. Um, and it's at the house that they um, present a lot of their research and there's a lot of like collaborative events where you'll have scientists and artists and humanists kind of talking to each other. Um, so as cultural institutions go, it is quite a academic <laughs> one um but it obviously also has this public facing aspect so for me it felt like a really good stepping stone to kind of use my knowledge and my thinking about the anthropocene and environmental issues but to be able to start writing for a public audience that's great that's exciting work i always like seeing those kind of events where there's people from just all different sectors and disciplines kind of learn to collaborate and share their perspectives with one another uh, and public facing work, especially. I mean, that's one of the things I'm always, you know, trying to get into a little more, at least with the work, you know, with the Forum on Religion and Ecology, we have this podcast and a few things. So it's a little bit more public facing than just journal articles and the normal academic conferences and that kind of stuff. So uh, mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And, you know, the Anthropocene figures really prominently uh, in the book. So I want to talk a little bit more about radical animism. You kind of had me with the title. Even that alone, I was like, oh, reading after the end of the world. I was like any afters because I'm always, there's a little ambiguity. You know, sometimes when you're after something, you're seeking it in a way, right? You're going toward it, but obviously it also means being subsequent to it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, thinking really of those limits, but also even radical to cover the book, get a sense that radical isn't just politically radical. There's roots. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I wonder if you could just say a little bit, like, what's what's radical animism? Animism is kind of a, a loaded word, I think, in, in some contexts, and uh, it might ruffle some feathers. And so, but you clarify it in a really interesting way. Um, thank you. Uh, so, animism, just kind of to give a basic definition, so that anyone listening is kind of um, on the same page. Um, the word animism comes from a Victorian anthropologist called E.B. Tyler, who used it to uh, describe the belief systems of so-called primitive um, peoples who saw that there was life or agency in non-human, non-living things. So this notion of kind of spirit in rocks and rivers and things like that. Um, and this was obviously a kind of pejorative term. He was he was um, 
ascribing kind of theistic religions as being somehow higher and more evolved than these um, animistic religions. Um, but my my notion of a radical animism is, as you say, so the word radical comes from the Latin radix, meaning root. So it's the notion that there is an animism at root in human culture, psychology, language, that it affects everything that we think and do. Um, it also kind of has a particular significance in light of climate change, where, of course, the, the planet seems to have its own agency and is kind of demanding that we respond to it. Um, so it, and it's a little bit like, I guess, the, um, the, the Bruno Latour, we have never been modern. It's kind of the notion, well, we've, we've never not been animists. We might have thought that we were not animists for a while, but, but actually it's really kind of central to, to being alive, to, to being conscious. Um, so that's kind of, uh, I tried to argue that it's, that it's just everywhere, but I guess the, the kind of key, um, places that you find it in the book is in language. So the notion that language has a life of its own, that language is animistic, that it kind of, um, not only kind of shapes what we think and say and what we can think and say, but that also when we read a text that the language kind of gets up to things on its own, it kind of makes connections um, that the author perhaps intended, perhaps didn't intend. The the language kind of does that on its own. Um, and then also within the unconscious mind. So, you know, we have this kind of and, and this kind of fits in again with this like modern delusion, but we all sort of walk around as if we are the agents of a rational will. Um, but actually as uh, psychoanalysis and modern psychology and neuroscience show us, um, the unconscious mind is kind of making decisions uh, that we're not even aware of or before we're even aware of them. So there's this kind of gap between the conscious I that we think we are and these other forces, these unconscious forces that are driving and shaping our actions. Um, yeah. And so I guess for me, it's about, um, you know, you can't suppress these effects, but it's about kind of, becoming aware of them and recognizing them and thinking, okay, what does that mean if I'm not really in control? If we as a species are not really in control, how might that change how we act and interact with the world around us? Right. Yeah. That's such a, such a big lesson to learn. Like, oh, okay. It turns out I'm not really in control here at all. And I really th I thought I was not at all. And even things, I mean, you think, well, at least my own language, I must be in control of that. These are the words I'm speaking. Like, no, sorry, you're not, you can't quite nail these things down. And I guess this is one of the things that's been uh, so contested about even the term Anthropocene is it's giving so much agency to the human and to the human kind of in general. We're like, well, it's, it's not necessarily like us in charge here. And, uh, and I think that's kind of, you know, so you have other things, you know, Donna Haraway's Thulu scene and you know, things like that. People drawing attention to Gaia and it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not really us. And to the extent that it's us, it's not us alone. It's us, you know, immersed in this, you know, bigger world. So uh, I know, you know, you read 
the very idea of the Anthropocene in relationship to Kafka. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder if you could say something about that. I think that's a really interesting connection, a great way to kind of flesh out what the, the challenge of the Anthropocene is all about. Um, yeah, so I'm the, in the kind of introductory chapter of the book. I read um, Kafka's Metamorphosis, um, which might also be translated as the transformation. It's Verwandlung in, in German. Um, so I kind of use this image where he wakes up one morning and, and finds that he's become a monstrous vermin, right? Um, that that kind of might be a parable or a fable for our situation where we have just kind of begun to woke, sorry, begun to wake up to the fact that we have kind of become the monstrous vermin of the world. Like we were just going about our lives. We were, you know, doing our work, living, um, making what we thought was progress in, in industry and in technology um, and actually all these kind of insidious accumulative effects have um, changed that situation so much that what, whereas we may have once thought, okay, we are the most advanced species on the planet, you know, look how well we're doing, but actually we kind of wake up and it's like, oh, we are undermining the very conditions upon which we rely to live. Um so, yeah, and then there's just loads in that story about, you know, the kind of the way that his family treat him. And so these kind of relations between humans and non-humans that um, are also quite interesting for thinking about the situation that we're in. Yeah, I like that a lot. And in general, it's just, you know, one of the great things about using literature to think through these things is just it's so much rich uh, imagery and metaphor. And so it helps you see so many more aspects to what's going on. I think sometimes if you think of the Anthropocene, just in terms of geology, we're missing that sense, that horrifying sense of waking up and being like, uh Oh, this, mm -hmm. uh, this is not going well. So the kind of affective dimension to all this comes out really well. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of that reading that I, give of Kafka or that kind of, I don't know, suggested itself to me is like another example of this animism. So like, you know, when I was at um, doing my bachelor's, like that story was taught as like a parable about disability or like, you know, these kind of all these different things that 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 metaphor was for. Um, and it's only it's kind of it's not that Kafka was writing a parable about climate change it's that the the context that we're in also works to change the text or the text transforms itself in in relation to the context and that's kind of part of the magic of of language and literature that i try to attend to i think that's so important i think there's still a pretty big tendency where people want to think of a text in terms of like the author's intentions and uh, like, oh, well, what were they thinking? What were they meaning? Like, well, it's, it really overflows that so much. And so to kind of look at a text, like it's it has its own agency and changes with times and contexts and things. I think that's so important. Uh, just, you know, and I know there's, there's plenty of authors who've drawn attention to that, but I feel like there's still this tendency for people to be like, ah, the real meaning of the text is whatever, whatever Kafka meant when he was writing it. Like, no. I don't know if he would have thought that either necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah. 
And I, I mean, yeah, I think for me as well, like reading needs to have this kind of radical openness. So even though I can say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm giving this reading of Kafka that, that links it to climate change and the environment, like I'm absolutely not saying that that is now the meaning of the text or that is the yeah. definitive reading. It's, it's about this kind of, yeah, complete openness to, the text as this this thing that is like endlessly rich and productive and yeah can respond to context just as much as you respond to it yeah yeah exactly yeah although it sounds better when you go this is the definitive reading of kafka <laughs> that's uh, no i don't know if it's possible of a definitive reading once and for all uh so yeah i, I don't know just like the way that you engage the, uh, all the texts in, uh, in the book for that reason, just like you can see them kind of shape-shifting with the context and how like, well, the Anthropocene is making really all of the history of, of literature and of science, philosophy, it's really changing all of it. Everything looks so different. Kind of that, you know, we've never not been animists. All of a sudden you realize, oh, right, the texts themselves are animated. Everything has this mm -hmm. kind of agency. Once you decenter the human a little bit, everything shows up in a new way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, one of the things, it's kind of an overarching theme for the whole book is this uh, idea that uh, the Freud had, right. Uh, that there's these three blows against human narcissism that have happened. And, uh, you know, Copernicus saying that we're, it turns out we're not the center of the world. And he have Darwin saying, by the way, we're not that different than animals. In fact, we are animals. We're related to animals. And then, uh, and then Freud gives himself credit for dealing the third blow, right? And saying that our rational minds are really just the tip of an iceberg, and we're mostly all these drives and instincts and things, and we're not we're not in charge. So there's this really profound decentering of of the human subject and human agency, and uh, and you read those three blows alongside some uh, literary figures. Right. And so it's what uh, Copernicus gets read alongside Virginia Woolf and uh, Darwin gets read alongside Lewis Carroll uh, and some other folks, Helen MacDonald, Nicholas Royal. And then you read Freud uh, with Shakespeare and Clarice Lispector. Uh, so I don't know. I think those are really interesting juxtapositions. One of the things that excites me the most about work in environmental humanities or eco-criticism is when you just see people juxtaposing things that you wouldn't necessarily see in any other context you know the idea of uh like darwin with lewis carroll like who who would have thought of that so i don't know i'm curious how those uh juxtapositions came to you in the first place and then kind of what you what you do with them hmm. um how did they come to me in the first place it it's, was, it's it, worst question right it's always like asking like a comedian where do you how do you come up with your jokes like, yeah no <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I wish I had something prof profound to say. But you know, I feel like it was, it was much more chancy than that. It was, it was me wanting to write about things that I enjoy, um, and kind of, you know, finding finding the connections there. So, um, so yeah, Wolf um, goes alongside. Copernicus. So obviously, yeah, as you said, that's kind of learning that we're not the center of a physical, but also a conceptual universe. Um, and then I read two wolf novels to the lighthouse and the waves, which um, kind of also really have this decentering aspect, although they are um, 
books about human characters, there are in both texts these passages that are completely absent of, hum- absent of humans, right? So in the waves, there's these interspersed bits of description about the waves on the shore. And into the lighthouse, there's this whole middle section called Time Passes that's just about an empty house. Um, so kind of on the like broader uh, narrative structural level, you have this kind of attention to or decentering attention to the non-human or decentering of the human. But I think that it also happens on a much more micro scale. So kind of at the level of, of language and rhythm, Wolf is super attentive to, to the, to um, what I'm, what I call the animism of, of rhythm. So the way that kind of, um, you know, when you're, when you're writing, there's certain words that sound better in a certain order. So, you know, kind of the actual materiality of the letters and the words themselves start to dictate how they are arranged on the page, um, which then, of course, changes exactly what you're writing. Um, and then Darwin and Carol, um, I think the... The Carol thing, I, I was just like rereading Alice in Wonderland for fun and I'd I'd shortly turned vegan. So I basically, I turned vegan kind of a little bit into my PhD because like as I was reading more about climate change and stuff, I was like, I mean, I'd already previously been vegetarian, but I was like, I can't be involved in this dairy industry business anymore not that I was involved in this that sounds wrong you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. I can't be contributing to right. to um industrial dairy farming anyway and then I was reading um I was reading Alice in Wonderland and I was like this is like a vegan book like it's hmm. so um there's all these like encounters where she's you know kind of talking to these different animals and when she's kind of she'll be like talking to an animal and then she'll like says oh like I've I've seen them before at din like cutting herself off before saying dinner and it's like she's having all these little micro realizations that these people animals that she's talking to she had previously only known in the context of a of um the dining table and yeah the moment at the end when um you know the red queen introduces her to the joint and then alice offers to carve her a, a slice and the red queen says it's not it's not polite to carve someone who you've been introduced to um and it's like well no it's not that would be really really rude but you know obviously kind of within the structure of um a meat-eating society it's kind of made to seem okay and so for me suddenly there was all there were all these moments in Alice that were kind of um bringing up this awareness of um how we are related to to other beings and how they're not just objects um and then yeah I guess just to finish off the the little three there. So the last one is Freud and Shakespeare. Um, for that, so um, for this blow, just as a reminder, it's obviously about the um, unconscious mind. Um, and so f- for that one, it's where there's, I noticed when I was reading Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that there's these like four O's that um, 
his little grandson is is kind of saying because he can't say fought or gone. Um, and it just, I think maybe I had been reading Hamlet at the same time, but mm. it just like reminded me of um, Hamlet's dying breath that is in some editions of, of, of Hamlet. And obviously Freud is very famously into Shakespeare, but when I started looking into it, the more parallels that I could kind of see between Freud's text and Shakespeare's text. And then it was kind of about me thinking, well, did Freud consciously have um, Hamlet in mind when he was writing Beyond the Pleasure Principle, or was it just there in his unconscious? And and we'll never know. And, you know, um, but... And it, in the end, it doesn't really matter because there's there's a level at which these kind of relations work beyond authorial intention, as we as we've already said. Um, yeah, and I guess kind of with all of this stuff that I've just said, and with all of the readings that I give in the book, um, it's kind of then all brought back to the notion of okay, what does this decentering, this relationality, this awareness of the unconscious mind, like what does that mean in the context of the climate crisis and the Anthropocene? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a very good overview of really a, a lot of uh, complex material for the book. I appreciate uh, how you're able to put that in such a succinct way. Because uh, geez, even sometimes after I write something and somebody's like, what did you write? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I did. I had to look at the introduction again today because you invited me to this and like, you're like, oh, this new book, it doesn't feel like a new book to me. <laughs> it feels like ancient history. And I was like, oh my God, what did I write? So I like relooked at the introduction to remind myself of that, but I'm glad that it uh, yeah, came across clear. Yeah, that's funny. Speaking of how a text exceeds authorial intention, you're like, oh, I don't know what's in there. <laughs> I'll have to look again at the text. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh, exactly. who wrote this? Oh, this is pretty good. I think I like this author. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and geez, Freud's talking about these these blows to human narcissism, you know, a little while ago. And I feel like, I'm not sure if people have really digested that. I mean, I think also of like the field of environmental ethics, for like 50 years has been going on and on about how we were too anthropocentric and we need to wake up to, you know, a larger center, you know, whether it's biocentrism, ecocentrism, whatever. And uh, meanwhile, it seems like a lot of people are just doubling down on being anthropocentric. Like they're not listening to this. And even though, you know, you ask somebody, well, do you think Copernicus was right? And they're like, sure, sure. Yeah. We revolve around the sun. I get it. Mm -hmm. Like, But do you? <laughs> Like, there you mm -hmm. have we really digested this, or that we're, you know, as humans, we're descended from a line of apes. And so it's like, oh, sure, yeah, I know, yeah, evolution's real, Darwin, sure. Like, I'm not, are people really digesting this? And so, you know, I wonder, you know, how that figures into this, because clearly things like the climate crisis and, you know, the Anthropocene in general are really driven by some of these attitudes of human narcissism. And so, you know, why, like, why aren't we listening or what's, what's going on with that? How is that affecting us? Um, yeah. So, I mean, the other move that the, the book makes somewhat predictably perhaps is to, to talk about the climate crisis as a fourth blow to human narcissism that kind of comes as a direct result of what you've just been saying. So precisely because we 
know these things, but don't really act in a way that is according to that knowledge. So, you know, we know we're not the center of the universe. We know that we're related to other animals. We know in some sense that we have an unconscious mind, but we don't act as if that is the case. We go on kind of acting as if we're separate from the environment around us and that, you know, we're, we're rational beings who can, who can vote and, and make decisions based on, on this kind of unshakable rationality that kind of, yeah, the, the, the buildup of this delusion can be, can trace its way directly to the, what, what has caused all the um, environmental crises that we're dealing with today. And so, and kind of to relate this all back to animism, um, you know, those kind of, those first three blows are suppressible, are deniable. But then this one, because it issues from the planet itself, rather than from a human discovery, so Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, this is now the planet issuing the fourth blow. And so we don't have the choice now to say, okay, we know that, but we'll not do anything. I mean, that is actually exactly what's happening. We know it and we're not doing anything. <laughs> but, but um, you know, as we're seeing more and more um, with droughts, with wildfires, with glaciers melting, you know, it's just the beginning of something that could potentially cause unimaginable suffering for so many humans and other species of life that can, you know, is already wiping out so many unique, irreplaceable species. Um, and in the end will very much undermine the, the conditions on which we depend to live. Um, so yeah, it's kind of the notion that, yeah, this, this fourth blow forces us to act in some way, whether we do act in time, um, is another question. Right. Yeah. And in some sense, I mean, we think of some of the species we've already lost, we're, we're already too late. And so, yeah, the idea of, you know, well, do we have time? We have time for some things, but we're definitely too late for others. And I guess this, you know, brings us to, you know, your subtitle that we're reading after the end of the world. Uh, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about the end of the world. I mean, it's, you know, that's a cheery topic to get into, but, uh, you know, how, what does it mean to be reading after the end of the world? Um, so, sorry, I'm going to have to correct you. It's reading for the end of for the, the world. Oh, geez. Thank you. Not after. That's, well, that's um, even, that's even heavier in a lot of ways. Um, yes and no. Uh, so the, it's supposed to have a kind of double meaning. So the word world, um, and as anyone who reads the book will discover, I'm very interested in etymology. Um, and the kind of animistic things that go on within words. Um, the word world comes from the old Danish wereld, meaning the age of man. So just like werewolf is man-wolf, this wereld is man-age. Um, and so when I'm saying reading 
for the end of the world. In one sense, it's okay, a reading that is appropriate for this apocalyptic time that we're living through. In another sense, it's for in the sense of supporting the end of the age of man, not uh, looking for the extinction of the human, I hope, but the end of the age of man with a capital M, this conception of human beings as this uh, rational, separable agent that can kind of just, you know, plunder other cultures and environmental resources in the name of progress with a capital P and, um, yeah, and kind of so reading for the end of the world would be can we be open to a new way of being in which um, we respect not only the kind of the animism of other creatures, non-living entities, but the kind of the animism that shifts uh, in the grounds of ourself um, and kind of have a much more, therefore, humble way of being and relating in the world. Right, right. Humility. Uh, yeah, such a simple lesson in a way, and yet so much to digest. I mean, especially when you think, for instance, that that would mean we might want to change our diets once you, you know, really realize who we are, what's going on. That's, you know, that's, there's a lot packed into that. And, uh, and one of the things I also appreciate in, in the book is that you're thinking with uh, Jacques Derrida quite a bit. And uh, I don't know, I think, it's been in recent years, there's started to be a movement toward a kind of ecological deconstruction, and people have started to see the, the relevance of that. Otherwise, I don't know, people, when he's, oh, there's nothing outside the text, he's just talking about books all the time, and it's just stuck in language. It's obviously so much more complicated than that. And uh, so it's just, you know, a breath of fresh air to see you in, engaging his thought in such a creative way, in a way that's so relevant to our time, to the Anthropocene. And so I'm um, just kind of a cheerleader for Derrida in some respects. So mm. I was just really happy to see that. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about Derrida. I know, you know, from a literary background, I think people take him pretty seriously, and mm. but not necessarily in an ecological way. And so I wonder yeah. how he's come into your thinking and how he came into this book. And... Sure. Um, so first I would like to debunk the um, misreading of there is nothing outside the text which, you know, most quoted and most misunderstood line in his work, right? Um, so he's not saying there is nothing outside the text on the page and that, you know, all we think about is language. He's saying that everything is textual and that human language and writing, so writing, speech, is just one species of a whole ecosystem of marks and traces. Um, so rather than elevating human language, he's actually kind of, um, you know, bringing it into, into level with this, this whole other world of, of traces that includes, um, you know, the unconscious mind, but also non-human traces. Um, so yeah, for, for me, he's a profoundly environmental thinker, even when he's not thinking about the environment, just because of the way that he's so perceptive about reality. Um, as, as for kind of how I came to him, I mean, it's very kind of uh, 
practical thing as well. My PhD supervisor um, is a quite well-known Derrida scholar, so kind of, um, you know, growing up intellectually with him just meant that I was uh, exposed to exposed to a lot of a lot of his work and then yeah um found it very compelling um I will caveat it with that you know, with the fact that I do see and recognize that like a lot of Derrida is like unnecessarily hard to read and like I just I just want to say to like anyone listening, if you are struggling reading Derrida, like it's not your fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like I because it's something that I really try to do with my work is like be generous to the reader and like yeah. you know, I just I I really think that there should always be a way that you can express yourself in in a very clear way and and you know. I'm obviously uh, not as great a thinker as Derrida, so may- maybe maybe I just don't understand his more difficult stuff well, and and that that's fine with me actually. Um, but yeah, I do. I guess I'm a, a little bit ambivalent. Like I I so love so many of his ideas, but it takes so much effort to like get your head around them that it's kind of it, it it's a little bit like that thing that makes me uneasy about academia in general that is this this kind of like exclusive inward facing club um so yeah I kind of um I wish for yeah more more clarity and generosity in writing um but that said as he kind of relates to the book a little bit more um so I mean aside from the stuff about language and text he he has this kind of real sustained deconstruction of anthropocentrism and and thinking of animals and animality so in books like the animal that therefore i am and um the beast and the sovereign there's a short interview that he gives called eating well where he kind of talks about um the the way that meat eating is kind of inscribed into our culture um, and actually, when you you said earlier putting Darwin and and Carol together, like who who would have thought of that in the animal that therefore I am? Derrida actually says, like I would have liked to inscribe this whole talk through a reading of Lewis Carroll, and then he says, maybe I did without your knowing it, um, which is just a quite nice funny moment. Um, so yeah, maybe that was also kind of. Uh, affected my bringing him in there um and then also his he thinks very deeply about like ethics and responsibility which is of course really important for thinking about environmental questions um he has this this line from um a jewish jewish poet paul Celan that he often returns to which translated into english is the world is gone i must carry you and again, kind of, you know, obviously with these ideas that I'm having about thinking about the end of the world, um, but that there is then kind of with the fact of the end of the world, whether that's the apocalyptic end of the world or the end of the age of man, that there comes this responsibility, I must carry you. There's like an injunction to then do something um, for for the other. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Very well said. I, I really love that line from Salon. Such a, such a beautiful line and, and the mm. way Derrida works with it. And, and I really appreciate you also mentioning that <laughs> Derrida seems unnecessarily difficult. And, uh, yeah, cause I, I find that even, you know, with people who really adore Derrida's thinking, they're still like, he could have probably said that in a clearer way. And it's one of those things. There's just so many kind of hoops to go through, or there's, there's just a lot of work to get into something. And then there's some core insight. That's just so amazing. Yeah. Like, he maybe didn't need all the rhetorical distantiations to get there, but you know, I like yeah. where you got, but wow, that was quite a ride to get there. Yeah. And it kind of, it makes um, all the kind of pushback against him quite understandable, right? Yeah. Because th there are a lot of people who really hate him. Yeah. And and I think that that is at least in part the reason. Um, maybe a little bit of further shameless self-promotion. I also wrote a introduction to deconstruction for the um, Oxford Encyclopedia. Encyc yeah, Oxford Encyclopedia of Literary Theory, mm. um, which is basically just like a chapter length introduction to Derrida and deconstruction and the different aspects of his work, not necessarily related to the environment, but in general. Um, and I'm quite proud of the way that I managed to kind of distill and and make it a little bit more accessible for you know, learners or someone who's coming to his work for the first time. So um, if if anyone is interested and, and wants to have a look at that, do so. And if you can't get hold of it, get in touch with me. Oh, nice. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll definitely be checking that out. Because even though I like Derrida's work a lot, I'm still at a point where I'm like, wait, what exactly are some of these ideas? So yeah, clear secondary sources are just such a gift and mm. uh, and so important and and i think it's getting better with time we're you know we're gradually figuring out what this guy was saying it's gonna it's, it'll probably still take a little a little bit mm -hmm. um but you know on that note i'm curious you know what other what are the projects you have in the mix these days are you working on any uh new books or articles any other kind of writing or you know what's uh, what do you see kind of on the horizon um so I just had an article published actually in um, EcoZone, um, which is on mycorrhizal metaphors. Mm. Um, so, and it's kind of thinking about um, language as fungal um, and, yeah, and sort of through a reading of. Um, Elizabeth Jane Burnett's memoir, The Grassling. Um, and yeah, kind of thinking about language as fungal in terms of, I guess, in this unconscious way where there's this like kind of, you know, underground mycelium that is completely out of our sight. Um, and then like the words are kind of like mushrooms that like pop up in different places, but there's all these like underground connections that we're not necessarily aware of. Um, I actually wrote that in like 2020, but as academic publishing sometimes goes, it took a while for it to come out, but that, that came out this month. Um, that was also kind of the basis for, I was applying for a, another postdoc to kind of work on fungi and, and literature more deeply. Um, I still haven't heard back from that, but at this point I'm kind of like, maybe I'm just gone from academia 
anyway. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'm writing a novel, um, which is kind of also about the Anthropocene and human memory and the unconscious and yeah, lots of, lots of the things that we've already talked about, but kind of in the frame of a fictional story. Mm. Um, so that feels really great. I mean, I love, I love that kind of, well, I think the book Radical Animism is on the creative end of academic writing anyway, but like, I love the the agency of kind of really, um, yeah, writing very freely. Um, yeah. And then I don't know, I'm in a little bit of a limbo state because my contract at my current job is about to finish and mm. I don't really know um, what I'm going to, what I'm going to do next. Um, like maybe some freelance writing and editing for a while, but um, yeah, I'm in that, you know, I sort of left academia and thought, well, at least I won't be precariously employed anymore, but <laughs> right. I'm still precariously employed. Um, That's true. That's a problem bigger than academia, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that really, you know, speaks to our moment in general, you know, the, the kind of liminality of, you know, we're at this point where the old world kind of is crumbling and we don't know exactly what the future holds. And so that's, it seems uh, very appropriate to the, the conditions of the Anthropocene. Mm. Like, oh, I'm not sure exactly. We'll see that our whole species is precariously employed right now. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, just because it's uh, in fashion, shall, shall we say, it doesn't make it feel any better. <laughs> That's true. It's no consolation. No. Maybe even kind of makes it worse. Like, you know, if it was just me, there'd be one thing, knowing it's this whole problem. It's kind of, yeah, it's a little twist of the knife there. Uh, well, geez, I wonder, you know, one last thing uh, I'm curious about is uh, veganism, because mm -hmm. that's, it's, that's a big commitment, and even vegetarianism. And so for anybody who's kind of tuning in, who uh, maybe is a vegetarian, who hasn't transitioned to veganism, and is maybe thinking about it, or somebody who's just full on still eating meat, and maybe not even thinking about, you know, organic or anything. Uh, what's been that journey like for you? Hmm. It's a big question. And, you know, like, because uh, some people, I know, you know, some people who are being raised vegetarian by their parents. So they grew up with that. It's just kind of normal to begin with. Uh, yeah. So I wonder, you know, when did you kind of make the leap into vegetarianism? Um, I became vegetarian when I was 14 because I thought it was cool and I wanted to annoy my family. <laughs> That's good. No, no, no great. Um, like moral uh high ground there unfortunately <laughs> that that kind of came later i think i then like was vegetarian for a few years and and sort of then later like became more aware of of animal cruelty and and environmental issues um yeah and then as i said kind of the veganism came once i started working on my phd and became more aware of it mm. um for me, it was never that hard, honestly. Like, um, so I don't know how much advice I can really give for people that are like really struggling. Um, but I will say that like, you know, after this long, I don't miss anything at all. The like alternatives now are like so much better than 10 years ago. So that makes it so much easier. 
But also, I guess, okay, the one like key bit of advice, advice that I would give is like, it doesn't need to be all or nothing. So I think people have this mentality of like, okay, if I can't be vegan all the time, then I may as well just eat meat at every meal. Like actually reducing is hugely impactful. So, you know, um, so like explore things that you like, try to just incorporate it like a bit more um, frequently and like don't beat yourself up if you slip up, you know, like I think it's so much more to it than as with all the environmental actions with, with um, flying and car driving and stuff, there's so much more to it than the decision of like, okay, this is the best thing for the environment and this is the worst thing. Like it's bound up in emotion and memory and family and culture. And so, you know, I think that as with everything, like compassion has to be kind of key to, to, how you go about it. Nice. I like that a lot. Yeah. I think in general, the kind of purity ethics gets in the way of a lot of things. It's like, oh, it's all or nothing. Like, yeah, it's okay. If you can just do every little bit helps. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I like, if somebody's looking for motivation, do it to make your parents mad. <laughs> I like that a lot. Hey, I'm just trying yeah. to be cool. Make my you don't mad. you don't have to dye your hair black at the same time and like <laughs> wear black lipstick, but I just did that too for good measure. <laughs> just for good measure. Oh, that's great. That's a good way in. Like, oh, I'm, it's not really about the environment. <laughs> just, it is now. It is now. It just yeah, wasn't then. I was that's young. The, yeah, I like just trying to be cool is like the gateway into eventually caring about the environment. I think that's great. <laughs> Well, geez, that's perfect advice. Uh, just be cool. You'll care about the environment in the long run. <laughs> hard, to, hard to find a better note uh, to end on. Uh, so, geez, uh, Rowan, thanks so much for making time for us. I, I really enjoyed this. One of the great things about this podcast is I just get to invite authors on that I, I really like their work and, and get to chat with them. Uh, so this was just a, just a treat. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it as well. Great. And, uh, and thanks for our audience, uh, for tuning in. We'll, uh, we'll be back with some more conversations for you later. And in the meantime, take care and be well. <laughs>